please stand for our scripture reading this morning? Mark 4, 26 to 34. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up. The seed sprouts and grows. Though he goes not know how, all by itself the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is a small seed on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Would you look with me to the Lord's to the Lord in prayer again as we attend to his word? <clears throat> Lord God, we thank you that you've gathered us this morning that we have reason to gather because of you, because of what you're doing because that you have a word to speak to us in your truth and in your kindness to us. Be with us this morning, I pray, that as we look to your word, you would teach us and correct us, that you would grow our faith and our hope and even our love as we look to your word and and consider how it applies to our lives, how it guides and directs us, how it changes how we think, how we act, how we love, and how we feel. I pray that you would guide my words as I speak this morning for your glory and for the sake of the and the benefit of those who hear. We pray these things gratefully in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. These are the words that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. These are the words we've been praying weekly. These are words... You've read, you've prayed, you've probably memorized them. Maybe you've sung them over the years. But we need them. And we need them to be written on our hearts more and more. More thoroughly and more honestly in our hearts and in how we live our lives. How difficult it is for you and for me to genuinely and in every aspect of our lives surrender to God that his will would be done. That his kingdom would come and not still in some ways in our own hearts and in our own lives pursue the things that we would desire, the things of some other kingdom that we have in mind instead of the kingdom that God in fact is bringing. And so as we look at these two parables from Mark chapter four today, we're gonna see that Jesus is using both these parables to teach about the kingdom of God. And I want you to remember back with me, if you can, to Mark chapter 1, if if you were here back in, 
I think that was January, we read and heard from Mark chapter 1, when Jesus first enters the scene in the book of Mark, his first words are, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's begun. And so Mark introduces the kingdom of God there in chapter 1 as a major theme of this book that we're continuing to study. And as this gospel, this book of Mark unfolds, the king is gradually revealed. The disciples and we, as the readers, come to understand a little bit more at a time what this king is claiming, who he is, and what this new kingdom of God is really all about. So here's, here's the point, and here's what I'm trying to get at, is that when, when Jesus comes and he's announcing and he's initiating the coming of the kingdom of God in the book of Mark, what he brings, the kingdom that he brings confronts and it surprises his listeners because the kingdom of God that comes with Jesus is much different than what they expected. A few weeks ago in chapter 3, we heard this story of, of the opposition, or several stories of the opposition that's beginning to grow against Jesus as he teaches and as he does healings. The scribes from Jerusalem began opposing him, and then even his own family began opposing Jesus. And so here now, Jesus responds in chapter 4 to this opposition by telling two parables. And he does this for the purpose of confronting and correcting the expectations of the people. The expectations about what God is doing and about this new kingdom that's now at hand. And it's worth noting, it's worth identifying as we get started that this kingdom that they expected would resemble the great warrior king David's kingdom. David lived about a thousand years before Jesus and he helped to establish the strong nation for Israel, a place of wealth and success uh, under his son Solomon. But that didn't last long. In the history of the Old Testament, the success of Israel as a nation was very short-lived. The kingdom was divided after Solomon. And then the people of both Israel and Judah later went into captivity. They lost their kingdom. By the time Jesus arrives now on the scene, the Roman Empire controls Jerusalem. And so in the wake of this long-standing national dream that's been dashed, their hopes are still set on the idea and the expectation that God's going to restore that kind of kingdom. But when Jesus comes, he reveals that the kingdom of God that he's bringing is not like a kingdom or a nation such as this. And instead of comparing the kingdom of God in his parables to some other mysterious nation, he uses the illustration in the parable of seeds. And so Jesus comes, and we're going to see that he comes not in strength and political force as they expected, but you know he came as a humble carpenter and as a teacher. And so the pressing question for them as they looked around and didn't see this strength growing, they didn't see this nation building, the question for them and the question even for us now is, will they and will we accept Jesus and the kind of kingdom that he brings 
as God determines to give them? Or will they and will we insist on our own self-serving concepts of a Messiah and a kingdom? And so the challenge is, is it his kingdom that we accept and we long for when we pray, thy kingdom come? Or is it really some version of my kingdom that I'm praying for, that I'm hoping for, and that I'm pursuing? And so it's important for us to pay attention as we reflect today and look at these parables, what it is and what it isn't that Jesus has promised his kingdom is like. While we walk now in this life, before the kingdom comes fully in all of its ways complete and Jesus returns in victory, what is the kingdom like now? How are we to understand it? How are we to understand this world and this life that we live until he returns? And in what ways do my thinking and my actions, my commitments, my pursuits, and my values need adjusting? All those things will, will percolate on and let those rest and, and ask those kinds of questions in our hearts as we hear these parables. And I'll go out on a limb to say probably your concept and my concept of a kingdom isn't really the reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel, right? That's not really what our hope is for, as it was for Jesus' contemporaries, but probably your version and my version, much like Israel's, include certain elements, and those elements probably include the pursuit of our own success and comforts, the pursuit of our own ease, prestige and respect, justice, now, we want them now, fully, abundantly now, just like Israel did for themselves. And so Jesus' parables not only confront Israel, but they confront us, and they teach us about the kingdom of God. And so we're, as we look at these parables here in Mark 4, we're going to see, first, we're going we're to see what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, and then second, we're going to identify our need to receive and to accept God's kingdom as his. So first, what is, what is the kingdom of God like? In these two parables, both of them, Jesus is discussing what the kingdom of God is like. It's imagery. It's a metaphor. And he's using it to correct and to confront their expectations. The parables are not meant to be a full-on explanation and definition of what the kingdom of God is. There's still mystery. <laughs> there's there's uh, not full disclosure in metaphor, but there's truth. And he does this in order to address their false expectations. So these two parables together teach us about the nature of God's kingdom and that it is hidden, that it's not obviously visible like the kingdoms we're used to seeing. But they indicate and they teach that God is already working in hidden ways and that he will certainly see his kingdom to completion, even and especially when it's difficult for us to see and believe that as we look around us. And so at this point, maybe you're asking yourself and you're a little unclear, and so I want to address it. What do you mean by the kingdom of God? 
So before we move on and keep talking about the kingdom of God, uh, I want to just give you an idea of what, what we mean and what Jesus means as we talk about the kingdom of God, and that it's, it's essentially God's reign. It's the things he rules over, all of his creation, and his work in renewing creation after the fall of Adam, after the entrance of sin into the world, after the entrance of death. And so it's this renewal of creation. It's the redemption of a people, the redeeming of souls. As Jesus came to earth, won a victory as a king of this people. And he did this by dying on the cross, rising from the dead, to save undeserving and sinful people from all nations, people like us, And so the only way you and I can become members and citizens of this kingdom is to have faith, right? None of us are good enough people to earn this. But Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life in our place, earning that eternal life and reward that he grants to us, his people, the citizens of his kingdom. And we're simply invited to believe in the sufficiency of this king and to follow him. He's the victor, and we're his people. And so this kingdom has already begun. It's at hand. It's already even progressed since the time of Jesus. But it's still not complete. And the Bible promises and tells us that he'll come again, and he'll complete and establish this kingdom fully when he returns to judge the world, and to bring a final and total defeat to all evil and to all suffering. And so this first parable, the parable of the seed growing to harvest, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain and the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest is come. When I was in fifth grade, uh, maybe you did a similar experiment at some point in time uh, where you put a bean sprout, right, a bean seed uh, into a small cup and we had... uh, a control cup and an experiment cup. So the control cup uh, was to show what happens if you don't do anything to your seed. And then the experiment cup, we would do all kinds of crazy weird things to, to try to see how we could affect the growth of the plant. And, And really, none of us could make it grow more. We killed it in all kinds of ways by, by putting in soda, uh, or by, uh, I'm trying to think what else we did to do, to try to, see what would affect these plants. But we could kill it, but we couldn't make it grow bigger. Personally, my experiment, I still remember, was to do something to try to pamper my plant, to give it an extra good life so that it would grow bigger and stronger than the control. And of course, it didn't. (laughs) And I just say that as a silly example, but as Jesus says in this parable, we don't know how... (laughs) The growth happens. The farmer doesn't know how. There's there's certain elements and factors that affect it, but we can't explain it and we can't cause it. And so as 
Jesus first arrives on the scene, initiating the coming of God's kingdom. He teaches that it's God who causes the growth of the kingdom, and therefore God who will bring it all the way to harvest. With emphasis, in the original Greek, uh, Jesus says that the growth happens by itself. Or in the Greek, automate, where we get our word automatic. It happens miraculously. The farmer's active, but he's not the cause of the growth, and he doesn't even know how it grows. It's a mystery to him. And so what does this mean? What's the significance Jesus is highlighting that God is bringing about a reality that they and we don't control and don't cause. That he's causing it in his own power and therefore it cannot be stopped. The kingdom of God and the fate of the world, the fate of our lives, is not controlled. It's not defeated. It's neither built nor delayed by humans or circumstances but it's in God's hands and according to his purposes. And it's going to grow and survive to harvest in spite of the obstacles and setbacks. What seem to be times of famine and losses. At the same time, on the other side of the coin, we're we're also humbled and confronted about our own role in God's kingdom. That it's not as dependent on us, as we like to think it is. It isn't visible or easily explainable. That is, God's kingdom is not visible or easily explainable. It isn't going to come by visible human strength and success, but it's going to come through weakness. As individuals and as a church, we can't manufacture God's work by our own strength, by our own money, by our own skills, our own strategies. It's God who causes the growth. And so as a church, we're always going to be inclined, just like we are in in every other area of life, to play to our strengths. To, to be strategic, and, and we should do those things to a certain degree, but it's not our success. That's not where the growth comes from. The growth comes from God attending to the seed, the seed of his word, in order to build his kingdom in his own power. And this is good news. It's freeing for us. Not because it frees us from labor and hard work, but because it frees us knowing that we can trust God with the result and that he will produce the growth and that a weak part-time brand new pastor can stand up here and, and preach a sermon and it doesn't have to accomplish everything that God's going to accomplish, but that he will work through his word. He will work through the weakness. And so Jesus knew that they're going to have a hard time believing when they see that Jesus is opposed, rejected, arrested, crucified, and buried. 
when they see the king mocked and not celebrated and murdered, they're going to have a hard time believing. They're going to have a hard time following as they look around. Because this is typically how we think and operate in terms of strategy and output, cause and effect and trends. But he tells them ahead of time at this point in Mark chapter 4 that in this parable, God is working behind the scenes to build his kingdom. Even when they can't see it, they don't know it, and they don't feel it. Perhaps even more clearly than the first parable, the second parable of the mustard seed illustrates the surprising nature and the characteristics of God's kingdom. I should say some characteristics of God's kingdom. Particularly that despite small and unimpressive beginnings, the kingdom of God will attain incredible growth. Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or with what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it, is sown, when it grows up, <clears throat> becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Jesus, the Son of God and the King of the Kingdom of God, wasn't born in a palace but in a cattle stall. He didn't complete 50 years of ministry. He preached only three. He ministered in a small, unimportant part of the country and the world. He never went to Rome, the big international city, and he gained only a few committed followers during his lifetime. Those followers mostly were not of high status or high education. They were lowly. They were despised and disgraced sinners. The leaders in the crowds that followed quickly grew to despise him. And they ended up giving him over to torture, to death. And this is it. This is the initial stage of the kingdom of God, which is at hand. To people at that time, it certainly didn't seem destined for greatness. But it was small and insignificant. It was a failure from earthly eyes. We know from other writings about plant life in that time and place that besides merely being a small and an unassuming, must being small and unassuming. The mustard seed was considered to be, the mustard plant, I'm sorry, was considered to be like a weed. Uh, it was notorious for being impossible to get rid of. And once those tiny seeds hit the ground, got into the dirt, there wasn't much that could be done to get them out. They'd start multiplying and multiplying. And it was very difficult to get rid of the mustard plant infestation. And I know we live all the way out here in um, San Diego. But does anyone know what kudzu is? Anyone know what I'm talking about with kudzu? Uh, it's, called, um, it's called the vine that ate the south. We lived six years in North Carolina, so indulge me for just a second. Uh, it's called the vine that ate the south. I was introduced in the 1800s. It was introduced for the purpose of covering porches. Uh, also then later for, for feeding livestock 
uh, very cheaply. Uh, and then later, introduced by the government to combat erosion during the Dust Bowl. It's now become an invasive species throughout the South. And it's this big, leafy, fast-growing green vine. It grows all over the southeastern states. And if you drive through uh, some of those states, you'll probably see it covering, like a blanket, trees in forested areas. And it eventually kills giant trees in entire wooded areas because it covers them from the sun. So like kudzu, the mustard plant is very difficult to stop once it's there. But at the same time, Jesus chose the mustard seed as his example, not the kudzu. And he chose the mustard seed because of its unique characteristics. So while it was like a weed, unlike kudzu and other weeds, the mustard seed is particularly like God's kingdom because the plant it produces grows large. It can grow up to six to ten feet tall. It also doesn't kill everything around it like the kudzu. But instead, Jesus highlights that it provides branches and shade as a refuge for birds. And so he tells this parable, gives this example of something that they see daily while they walk around in their communities so that when they see it, they'll be reminded of what God's kingdom is like. They'll be reminded that despite these small, frustrating, insignificant beginnings, God's going to bring it by his power to completion. What you see now is not what you get. What they see now is not what they're going to get. Despite everything they see around them, despite the failure, despite Jesus being arrested and crucified, his kingdom is coming, and it will triumph. And so when Jesus uses this example, he's not just optimistically predicting that he's going to go viral that he's going to make big headlines one day. But this is the claim. The claim with this example, with this parable, is the claim of fulfillment of God's long-standing, long-existing plan. You remember back 2,000 years before Jesus lived, God promised in Genesis 12 to improbably make Abraham, an old man with a barren wife, the father of a great nation, which would bless all the other nations. And then throughout the Old Testament, birds are repeatedly used. If you want to jot it down, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 31, Psalm 104, Daniel 4. Birds are used to represent the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations. And so, Here in this example, as Jesus chooses the mustard seed and as he describes the mustard plant, the claim is that birds will dwell in the plant. God is fulfilling what was begun and what was promised to Abraham 2,000 years earlier. That what Jesus does in this kingdom is going to turn into a large plant, providing for the birds, for all the nations, no longer just for Israel. And so as the kingdom of God comes with Jesus, the true king, God's kingdom and his salvation, 
will not just come to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. He's confronting them with the reality that his kingdom comes to all nations. And so at this point in Mark 4, when, when Jesus is obscure and now becoming opposed, he indicates that although they don't have a visible victory in power, while struggle, struggle and sufferings will increase and continue, the kingdom of God is certainly not lost. And in doing this with these parables, he's preparing them. He's preparing you and me to not lose hope. The kingdom of God in this parable shows us that until the kingdom comes in its fullness, we're going to face challenges. We're going to face loss. We're going to dwell in the midst of evil and sin. But what you see is not what you'll get. Whenever we see and we notice the smallness of the seed, or we can't even see the seed, we can't notice its growth. We're called to remember the colorful picture of the mustard seed, the promise that God's kingdom is going to come as a colorful picture that our lives and our struggle are not in vain and that God will not ultimately fail, but he's with you. And I want to turn now for the last few minutes to consider a second point, not just what Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like, but what he's doing, that he's pressing upon us the need and the purpose of the parables to show us our need, I'm sorry, excuse me, to show us our need to receive his kingdom. And so his goal in teaching these parables is not just to give us information or to make cute, beautiful metaphors, but he wants us to be able to recognize the kingdom of God for what it is, to be clear about what it is, so that we can value it, so that we can desire his kingdom above any other competing kingdoms in our hearts that we might attempt to or be tempted to pursue. So in the first parable, we notice that Jesus teaches his kingdom is not made with human hands. It's not something we can create, not something we can build. Not, it's not like our companies, our schools, our communities as we build them. But without fail, Jesus says God is causing it. So when the farmer comes, and he comes with the sickle, you know what the sickle is? Everyone know what a sickle is, kids? The sickle is the big curved machete-looking knife that the farmer carries. If you watch a movie and you see a bunch of farmers going into battle unexpectedly, a lot of times they're carrying these big curved knives that they use to cut the grain. So when the farmer comes with the sickle, to collect the harvest. That is, this is when Jesus comes again. This is when Jesus comes to bring his kingdom in fullness and to defeat all evil. 
And at the same time, the sickle throughout the Old Testament represents the threat of judgment, the threat of being cut off for those who are not a part of God's kingdom by faith. And so this imagery, this this farmer coming with the sickle, Jesus coming with the sickle presses and it warns us to take this so seriously because it's a matter of eternal life and eternal death, whether we believe or don't believe, whether we'll follow or not follow. In the parable of the mustard seed, we're told that his kingdom outgrows all other plants of the garden. His kingdom grows to be greater than all other rivals. For example, his kingdom is not like yours, the kingdom that you pursue. It's not merely going to be a place where you eat and drink abundantly while you wait to grow old. It's not where you experience leisure and ease. It's not where you can feel honored and respected or vindicated while there's still time left in your life to feel those things and to feel appreciated. But it is a place of rest and glory and good and plenty forever. It's much greater than our kingdoms that we pursue. And even more, it's, it's so much better because it's not just for me. It's not just for you. It's not just for people like us. It's for the nations. We are the nations, if you haven't noticed, if you look around. If, they, if you would have told Jesus' listeners that one day there was a place called California with people who looked like us, worshiping as a part of God's kingdom, They would hardly, how could they even conceptualize it, let alone believe it? But that's what God's done. He's brought the nations to himself. Here with us and around the world. His kingdom and his tree is a refuge for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, no matter what they look like. For all who are far off, for all who are hurting, for all who are low and insignificant, and all who, like us, have been tempted and lured by sin and selfishness. And so, when the kingdom comes, the Bible tells us the king's going to come and he's going to defeat his enemies completely. All evil, all suffering, all sin will be wiped away, gone, eliminated. Hear no more. His kingdom's not just a better reward, a bigger candy than what you could achieve by yourself. But it is the ultimate triumph, the thorough embodiment of goodness that we all long for. And it will only be accomplished in Jesus and his return. And so God's kingdom has begun, but it's not yet here. In all of its fullness, it's not yet finished. There's a greater reality to come when he comes as our king, claiming total victory, and then ruling with no more false rivals. I want to tell you that the kingdom of God has begun. 
It begun with Jesus' coming, and it's not an uncertain thing. Jesus' words are not just words or musings from an ancient wise man. But we see that what Jesus said about his kingdom 2,000 years ago is in the works. It's been manifesting itself over the course of history. Improbably, that little mustard seed took root and has grown very large. And you've seen the growth. You've seen it in various ways. Jesus rose from the dead, just as he described and predicted he would. His kingdom grew and his people expanded far beyond Israel to the Gentile nations. They've not been rooted up over 2,000 years, even as they faced persecutions. There's Christians now in every corner of the earth who find faith and rest in King Jesus. And we ourselves, as I said earlier, are evidence of that. And the seed of God and of his truth continues to grow and to spread rapidly. The New Testament, if you're not aware, has been translated into 1,500 languages. And that's not enough. Those projects are still ongoing, which we can support and pray for, so that all people can hear God's word in their own language. But it's gone to 1,500 languages. That's an astounding thing. The gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus is spreading and taking root at enormous rate. Think about China as the government has tried to to root it out, to root out Christianity. But the church has continued to grow at incredible rates in unlikely places. And then in your own lives, you've seen the fruit of the Spirit blossom as God changes your hearts. This too is evidence that the kingdom is certain, that it's real, and that it's in process. And so we're called by Jesus' parables to receive his kingdom through faith and to believe, daily resting on Christ as our king, as our victory, as the one who forgives. And what's even more, and what can sometimes be even more difficult, is for us to walk in faith, to keep walking in faith, not deceived by the allure of strength, of success and ease, thinking that we can have our little kingdoms on earth which we can secretly pursue in our own hearts. And we all do this. But we must fix our eyes on him and walk in faith. And Jesus prepares us to do that. He prepares us to not be surprised when when we face trials and difficulties. He prepares us not to be overcome by temptations when life's hardships hit us when things aren't going the way they ought to go. And isn't that when it gets so difficult and we cling for our little kingdoms and comforts? But when it seems life is crashing down all around us, or when it seems life is passing us by and we're missing out, in these moments, we feel like we can't even see a shadow. We can't even catch a glimpse of God's kingdom, of his triumph here in this life. So, Lord, give us. Give us clarity and strength in those moments to walk by faith and not by sight, as Paul says, that we hope 
We hope in what we do not see, and we long not for things that are seen, but to things that are unseen, and for things that are eternal. But rather looking and trusting in the good king and his promised kingdom, not abandoning him when trouble and despair on one hand, or when opportunities and prestige and pleasures on the other hand knock on our doors. And now, brothers and sisters, we, we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. But even still, we don't walk blindly. We've seen evidence of his kingdom. We've heard his promise. And we know it's true. We know he's growing his garden. We know the harvest is coming. His kingdom is coming. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the victory you've won for us, for your willingness, your grace in claiming us and making us yours. We thank you for being the perfect, faithful, and loving Father, giving us an eternal kingdom and inheritance in Christ, in Christ our King, and in eternal inheritance and kingdom that we don't deserve, but yet you bestow it. As we go out to our families and our lives, Father, we ask that you would write on our hearts belief and commitment to your kingdom and to you. We ask that you'd root us in the truth of your word, growing us more and more to maturity by your power as only you can. We ask that you would build your kingdom among us, continuing to give faith to many. We pray that you'd give faith throughout the world to those who do not know Christ, who've not heard. Bring your word. By your power, grant faith, redeeming grace to those with no hope. As you have to us. We ask that you would give faith to the children here in our church, to those who are here with questions, those hearing this and trying to decide what to make of it, whether to receive Jesus and his kingdom as he presents them. We pray for these hearts that you would guide them. We pray that you would continue producing fruit in our lives by your power, for your glory, for the sake of one another, that we might serve and love one another, that we might be a testimony of Jesus and his goodness to the world. Finally, we ask you, Lord God, to help us to walk by faith. Help us when we can't see and when we don't understand, when we don't know how to carry on, but walk with us, we pray. Deliver us from evil, the evil within our own hearts and the evils that surround us. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.